Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire. And you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. Is there a burning desire within to share your creativity with the rest of the world? Do you insist on pursuing your passion by any means necessary? Then you are on an Excelsior journey and you are not alone. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. My name is George Saroy. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much for listening to what is coming up to 60 episodes of this show. It's been an absolute blast. Um, I am so glad that I was finally able to get this going again after taking the little hiatus from uh, from moving into the new house, getting the new office ready. And I am so thrilled that we have been not only up and running for several months now, but Getting to talk to so many great people has just been a real, real joy. And that is there is that is no exception here this week. Uh, for starters, I just want to let you guys know that um, that a couple of new uh, new audio platforms have uh, have taken on Excelsior journeys. One of them that I mentioned before is Amazon. So you can listen to the show on your echo dot. How cool is that? And, as an added bonus, if uh, any of you are iHeartRadio listeners, Excelsior Journeys is one of the podcasts that you can find on that site as well. So there are now eight, at least, as far as I know, eight different platforms that you can find Excelsior Journeys. You can find it on the home base at Podbean. You can also find it on Apple, Google, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon, and iHeartRadio. Uh, there's so many opportunities for you to listen to the show so many great people that you get to hear from. You get to hear their origin stories, get to hear their own Excelsior journeys. And it's just been its just been an absolute blast. So if you are enjoying the show as much as I am, uh, please, uh, any review, any rating, any share, any subscription really, really helps, especially on Apple. Apple is the main platform. So any sort of attention over there is very much appreciated. Now, uh, there is uh, there is a line that I've always held on to as ever since I first heard it from the Jekyll and Hyde musical. And the line is one rule of life we cannot rearrange. The only thing constant is change. And that is something that very much applies to the entertainment industry. Uh, there is always something moving. There's always some new direction that uh, that the that, that the that the entertainment industry winds up going into, whether it's music, whether it's books, whether it's movies, whether it's television, it is constantly, constantly changing. And nowadays with COVID being what it is, uh, we're seeing movies in a much different type of platform. And we're seeing a lot more people picking up books. And it's, it's just been a really, really interesting time to say the least. And I'm so thrilled to have a guest who has been a part of so many different media from the time that he started. John Skip is a um, is a very popular horror and fantasy author. Um, he has worked in all different forms of publishing. He has done. Uh, he has been involved in music. He has been involved in television. He has been involved in movies. Um, he's got one hell of an Excelsior journey, and I'm so thrilled to have him here on the show to share that journey with us. So it is a great privilege to introduce to you, John Skip. John, how are you, sir? 
Good, man. How you doing? I am doing great. I, I am so thrilled that, you, that uh, you've been able to come here. And I'm really thrilled to hear that, um, that you have a new anthology that's been out. Can you share us a, a little bit about that with us? Um, well, okay. The book that just came out a couple of days ago uh, is called Video Palace. I believe the subtitle is In Search of the Eyeless Man. It was uh, put out uh, by Simon & Schuster in combination with Shudder, the streaming horror service, and uh, based on their popular podcast of the same name, um, and explores urban legends, particularly one involving a particular white tape from a particular video store, a, a VHS tape. Um, and... So it's vintage and uh, uh, a variety of, of people, uh, authors and uh, screenwriters and uh, various other horror related people were invited to, to do stories and talk with Dr. Maynard, uh, like I forget his last name, um, uh, Dr. Maynard James, something like that, who um, um, is doing research on this particular phenomenon and for some reason contacted me and asked me if I had had any experiences. I wrote a story called The Inward Eye, which might be the best short story I ever wrote. It is definitely the most autobiographical short story I've ever written. And, wow. uh, and one of a handful of stories that was written during uh, uh, the COVID phase so um yeah to have that out uh, is really really cool and uh, i hope people read it and like it and stuff excellent excellent now since since so much of this is uh since the the setting is a video store mm -hmm. um i am i'm really fascinated with the fact that you know like we are as as a as a culture and everything We've always been really kind of nostalgic towards the 80s and everything. I know that uh, the late 90s, it was kind of presented in a very humorous way in The Wedding Singer and uh, so many different things. But nowadays, in the in the past like 10 years, we have seen um, really like loving homages to all the to all these great this great 80s iconography. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts about that? Like how you know, like how it's become like something that really doesn't seem to be going anywhere. We seem to be holding on to the 80s forever now. I don't know why, frankly, because, okay, I was born in 1957. Hey, can I swear on this? Go for it. Okay. Um, yeah, I was born in 1957, so I'm, I'm really fucking uh, old. Um, <laughs> but every decade is really, really fascinating Mm -hmm. The 80s is where I, I made my bones as a uh, as a horror writer, as a New York Times bestselling horror author and so forth. But if you ask me, the 60s and the 70s were really, really interesting times. And mm -hmm. one of the fascinating things about the inward eye uh, uh, about writing that story for me uh, was that basically I had to chart my life history of my exposure to altered states of consciousness, to um, music and media and the secret messages inside of media and my sensitivity to thereof. And um, I had to walk through my childhood in Argentina where 
Uh, I saw my first people die within 10 minutes of getting off the plane in uh, Buenos Aires um, and uh, grew up around uh, cops, uh, traffic cops with submachine guns and uh, uh, yeah, blood in the streets. You know, I, I, I saw a lot of death, which very, very much informed me uh, and my, uh, my relationship with authority figures. <laughs> and uh, so when I came back to the States in 1970, and went straight into the anti-war protests in Washington, D.C., and getting tear gassed at the age of 13 with a boa constrictor around my neck. Um, um, yeah, it, it's, it's been a wild ride. So to me, the 80s, um, the Reagan-era 80s, is not the most interesting period of history. And I, I hope that, uh, that we extend our, our fetishism further uh, uh, both into the the, uh, uh, the subsequent and and earlier years, I got a I got a boner for the 1940s, mm. and, and, I, uh, and I really think that uh, the era of silent film was really fascinating. But the 80s were really interesting. Um, one of the most interesting things about the 80s, I think, was the advent of, of VHS and, and home video technology and the yeah. fact that you were no longer dependent on what was streaming on the handful of channels that existed or whatever uh, repertory movie theaters or drive-ins might be near you, but that the history of film started to become available. And, yeah. and uh, that, was, yeah. that was really, really fascinating. When all of a sudden there were video libraries that were comparable to... Uh, book libraries. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my first, uh, well, no, I, I had video stores in New York City when I was still living there as a street messenger and then subsequently as uh, um, uh, an author, uh, a published author. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really wild to be able to like go into a store. And the, the first two movies that I ever acquired were Cronenberg's uh, The Dead Zone and Alex Cox's Repo Man. And oh, wow. uh, and I, I was so thrilled to have access to both of those things and watch them anytime I wanted. Mm -hmm. And I had a new girlfriend and we could sit down and she could show me crazy shit like The Night Porter or uh, Phantom of the Paradise or oh. Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS. Wow. And I, could, <laughs> and I could show her Forbidden Zone and, um, um, oh man, you, you know, Bay of Blood, aka Twitch of the Death Nerd. Oh, you know, there, yeah. you know <laughs> there, there was all this, this, you know, this great stuff that you could watch at home. Now, in New York City, uh, uh, in the in the '80s, there were a lot of repertory theaters where I could go to a double bill of uh, Harold and Maude and King of Hearts, or uh, um, you know, any two given uh, John Waters films, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and. You know, it was really, really wonderful. And there were great theaters. You know, it was amazing to be able to go to the Ziegfeld Theater, uh, probably the finest theater in New York City, and Amen. watch, watch Pink Floyd The Wall six times in its opening week, um, <laughs> sitting front row balcony uh, several times on LSD uh, with the <laughs> quadraphonic sound system. You know, those, those experiences uh, will not be replicated again. But... Yeah. Um, yeah, no, the 80s was amazing, but really, you know, existence is amazing. I, I, uh, uh, I, do, not, I do not share the, the 80s fetish boner. It's, yeah. just, it's just another 10 years I, I went through. Gotcha. 
Gotcha. And, you know, just talking about the Ziegfeld just reminds me of that great time and much later in 2006 when my friends and I um, got a had a copious amount of of marijuana (laughs) and enjoyed 2001 A Space Odyssey over at the Ziegfeld. And Mm. still it still ranks as like top five, maybe of great movie experiences I've ever had. Yeah. Oh yeah, no that 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 theater was so great. The fact that it's it's dead now just you know is utterly heartbreaking. I, I don't know if that sort of theatrical grand experience will ever exist again, especially um, after COVID. You know, like, yeah, well, absolutely. Uh, COVID was the the KO punch on a theatrical uh, experience that was already hurting for certain. I mean, um, mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of tentpole movies. Uh, yeah. That they are not my jam. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of times I'll I would go to a movie theater uh, in an enormous uh, complex you know built to house a hundred thousand and there would be like four of us in the theater mm-hmm. uh, watching you know like shit the last movie I saw in a movie Danger Slater the great bizarre writer Danger Slater and I went to mm-hmm. see The Hunt uh, oh yeah yeah the, the I, most I know mass- of it I haven't seen it but I know of it yeah. It's the most massively fucked over great movie uh, in recent cinema history because uh, first they pulled it from release in uh, in 2019 because it was too controversial and people thought that it was uh, an anti-right-wing hatchet job, which in fact it is not. Um, right. it, it is a spectacular... More like anti-left-wing, right? It's a spectacularly even-handed movie uh, about a bunch of... Uh, red state leaning people who get kidnapped by a bunch of uh, uh, wealthy liberal elites and uh, get the most dangerous game played on them. Wow. Uh, but it is a sharp, hilarious, brutal, yeah. savage, yeah. fucking awesome film <laughs> that uh, we just had the best time. But there were five of us in the theater, in the entire giant theater at this megaplex to watch this thing and uh and so the theaters were in trouble before covid landed and then covid landed and just you know kind of leveled it now we'll see again i'm really uh really fascinated to see how we reconstruct once uh vaccines kick in and uh um, we start getting back to normal life you know like yeah, yeah, yeah. What, whatever the next version of normal life winds up being, yeah. uh, but but this ain't normal. Uh, yeah, th- th- this is not something that anybody can adjust to for much longer than than we have. You, you can yeah. see it just uh, grinding everybody down. But uh, when that happens, because the appetite for uh, quality and community experience is going to be so immense. Mm-hmm. Everybody's predicting the theaters are, are dead, but the buildings are still there. We'll see yeah. what happens. In the meantime, you know you know one of my favorite things? Mm-hmm. Drive-in movie theaters coming back to life. Yes. Oh, man. I was just talking about this with, with, uh, with a couple of my friends a few days ago. How cool it's, is that? It's, I love it. I love it. And um, speaking of which, I, I got a question for you then. Okay. Uh, before we jump into your origin story, I think you you would get a kick out of this question. Okay, so here's a hypothetical. You you are you were tagged by 
by a revival theater, say like the New Beverly, mm-hmm. and they invite you to program a week's worth of movies. Which, which ones do you pick? Um, well, I mean, if, if I have no thematic constraints, mm-hmm. my map would be pretty damn wide. Yeah. Um, if, if I had theatrical, if I had thematic constraints, that would be a different thing. But okay, um, I would program um, a Japanese noodle western called Tampopo, mm-hmm. maybe my favorite movie of all time. Uh, um, it's a it's a movie about food and how it relates to every aspect of Japanese culture, from birth to death, sex to business to crime, uh, uh, to love to murder. Uh, it, it's really it's really, really funny. It changed the way I looked at food for the rest of my life. Uh, it's just the movie makes me so crazy happy. I would program Amelie, which mm-hmm. is uh, also one of my favorite films of all time. I That's would incredible. program uh, George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, I would program Phantom of the Paradise. I would program the Preston Sturgis uh, 1940s screwball comedy Sullivan's Travels, which is probably, uh, if I were asked to remake one movie out of the entire history of film, it would probably be Sullivan's Travels. Do you know this film? I know of it. I have, I've yet to actually sit down and watch it, but I know of it. Okay, basically Sullivan's Travels is the story of uh, a rich, successful Hollywood uh, filmmaker who is best known for his silly goofball comedies, but he wants to make an important film about the human condition and social injustice and everything else. Um, And of course the producers are like, you're a rich Hollywood comedy director. You don't know anything about human suffering or the human condition. And he's like, well, then I'm going to go find out. So he goes down to wardrobe, uh, gets hobo clothes, uh, sticks some money in his shoe and uh, sets out to find out what real life is about so that he can make a very important movie about it. And you know Mm -hmm. what the name of that very important movie is? Old Brother, Where Art Thou? Really? Yes. Uh, If you ask the Coen brothers who one of their main, most important influences is, they would say Preston Sturgis. And um, you you can see it in in all of their work, in the snappiness of their dialogue, uh, Mm -hmm. in in all the stuff that they do. But yeah, their movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, is uh, named after his very important social uh, uh, injustice film that he was going to make in Sullivan's Travels. It's a really funny movie that Mm -hmm. when it goes dark, goes super dark, and you go, oh, holy shit, I can't believe this goofy screwball comedy uh, just found out how hard life is. Yeah, and I just think it's one of the uh, one of the greatest movies ever made. So awesome. I would definitely screen that. Um, if I were doing more horror stuff, uh, I don't know, man. It, you know, it's so interesting. Uh, I would definitely show Twitch of the Death Nerve, aka Bay of Blood. That's my favorite Mario Bava. Um, um, I mean, I know Black Sabbath and Black Christmas. Uh, what am I saying? Uh, Black. Uh, uh, Black Sabbath and Black, what's the other Black, Black Sunday? Black Sunday, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, very, very important films. I think A Drop of Water was one of the scariest things I ever saw as a teenager. But um, for some reason, uh, 
Bay of Blood, a.k.a. I saw it at the drive-ins as Twitch of the Death Nerve, which I think is one of the all-time great titles. And it's just such a a cool movie because it's basically uh, a proto-slasher movie in which anybody can, might, and probably is the slasher Mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, in, in which people keep dying and you keep going, wait, who did that? Oh, wait, you're the killer. Wait, somebody just killed you. And uh, uh, the, the flips and twists and turns of it are so fascinating. And uh, the gore gags are so uh, um, over the top. Well, and and also uh, such groundbreakers that like Friday the 13th ripped off of several uh, gags from them, including uh, the couple who are fucking and get the spear through them. Yes. Um, Yeah. Part two. Yeah. Stuff like that. Uh, yeah, I, I just I just feel like it, it's a real transformational film. I would actually show, um, I, I, I would want to show a triple bill of uh, Romero's original Night of the Living Dead, mm-hmm. uh, Peter Bogdanovich's movie Targets. Oh, star- yeah. Starring uh, um, Boris Karloff in one of his last roles as uh, an old time uh, horror actor who's uh, about to do his farewell appearance at a drive-in theater at the same time that a, uh, a deranged Vietnam War vet is going up on like the Texas Tower and sniping like Charles Whitman. Yeah. And uh, I, I really feel like, like Night of the Living Dead, Targets are the two horror movies that uh, defined... Uh, the moment that we transitioned from old horror to new horror. Yeah. And, and that came out, uh, they both came out the same year, 68, right? That's correct. Yeah. Um, and the other one that I would throw in just uh, because it, it underscored the other part of the change would be Peck and Paws, the wild bunch. Uh, oh yeah. Um, with maybe uh, Bonnie and Clyde thrown in because that, that's where the hyper realistic uh, uh, slow-mo squib laden ultra violence uh, of cinema first uh came into being and yeah. yeah i mean that that was really the moment where uh things changed from from gothic costume drama drama to modern uh uh addressing the damage of our time as a as a horror film nice those that's that sounds fantastic oh man i would i um I would have so much fun with with all of those. I remember uh Sean Cunningham dropping uh, several references to uh Twitch of the Death Nerve too on um it's done yeah um so let's go back to the beginning for you for you um what i like to call the lightning bolt moment because there's always that moment in everyone's life where they experience something or see something or hear something and that just makes them say that is what i want to do that is who i want to be that's the journey that i want to go on what was that moment for you with writing well i'll tell you it's really interesting um, and again, I talk about this in the short story. Uh, I also, I just did an, an interview, uh, a high school senior from Indiana just interviewed me because she wanted to talk about an essay, essay I had written for the Battle Royale slam book, talking about the movie uh, Battle Royale. Oh, it's a great um, one. And yeah, another one I would show. Um, but basically, okay. When I was two and a half years old, I had a fever Mm. and I hallucinated really super hard. And there were like these malformed rat things that were coming down the walls at me. It was so bad. 
that my dad had to Jacob's ladder me, which was basically uh, fill a bathtub with ice cubes and throw me in uh, mm. to, to snap the fever. And, um, and when uh, the rafts hit the water, they disappeared. And then my fever broke. Uh, but that was my first experience with uh, an altered state of consciousness that I'm aware of. Uh, mm -hmm. And it stuck with me. I was terrified of the dark and everything for many uh, years afterwards. Uh, but at a certain point, uh, like seeing a commercial for Frankenstein while I was watching cartoons would like just send me into a screaming shit fit. I would like be hiding under the dining room table uh, crying out for my mommy. Um, and then at a certain point, I just got really uh, fucking tired of being scared and decided that I was going to start watching monster movies on purpose and found out uh, that some of them really were scary, but a lot of them were really stupid. And that was cool too. And, uh, and became utterly fascinated with, with conquering fear and, and understanding the darkness. Then I moved to Argentina and saw real people die in front of me and saw, you know, like uh, uh, blood trails, a hundred uh, yards long going down the steps of auditoriums where, uh, where a, a football game, a soccer game uh, erupted into violence over a time score, uh, watch military police uh, uh, beat the living fuck out of uh, poor Chilean immigrants in front of me while I was playing soccer in my, uh, in my elementary school uh, playground and uh, watched a, a, a little shoeshine boy get beat to death by other shoeshine boys because he was the cutest one in the American, uh, 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 the, the American uh, business people and military people like to get their shoeshine by him. And uh, just realizing that violence was real and, um, and that if I wasn't careful, uh, that could happen to me. There, there, was a, uh, there was a car. I used to uh, walk from my house to uh, the train station. Mm -hmm. uh, it was about an eight-block walk, walk um, to go to school. And every day I would pass this car that was left by the, by the curb for over a year, a couple of people thought it would be a good idea to rob a bank, but when the traffic cops have submachine guns, it's not such a good idea. Uh, they, they totally Bonnie and Clyded this, this car. They Swiss cheesed it uh, uh, with machine gun fire mm -hmm. and then just left the bloody car sitting uh, at the curb for over a year in front of this bodega where people would go uh, to buy their groceries. So that you, it would be, it was like a fucking head on a spike. It just reminded you, yeah. if you fuck with us, we'll kill like, you. Yeah, warning to every, to every other person that would try that crap. So yeah. yeah. Who would even think about it, right? And so I would like, I would, uh, you know, 10 year old forensic pathologist, I, I would be looking through the bullet holes and going uh, in the side door and going, oh, so that's where that bullet hit the scene, which is why the, hit the seat, which is why that hole is ripped in the upholstery there and why that blood splash hit the wall there. Um, and uh, so that was very, very informative on, on a practical level. Um, meanwhile, I was reading Creepy Magazine and Eerie Magazine, which uh, uh, were horror comics of the 60s, which led me to uh, anthologies like uh, Alfred Hitchcock's stories they wouldn't let me do on TV, which contained stories by Ray Bradbury and Robert Block and contained the most dangerous game. And uh, 
mainly Wade Wellman and uh, 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 what's uh, what's his name, uh, Mr. James, and you know. So getting instructed in the classics. Uh, I was also finding like the the Pan and Fontana books of of, horror, of classic horror stories, so I got my education from there. Uh, continued uh, discovering more Ray Bradbury. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to Lord of the Flies, and uh, and basically was like, oh, I like writing. I yeah. really like writing. However, I also um, uh, got my first guitar around that same time first electric guitar and was immediately electrocuted by it which you would think would stop me from playing guitar but it just made me want to do it more um <laughs> because i was listening dangerous to element yeah yeah man I, I was listening to the beatles and and jimmy hendrix and i had a friend who had a uh, an older brother who was going to college uh in berkeley california and he would send care packages of music to his little brother with all the coolest latest psychedelic stuff so i was listening to frank zappa and the mothers of invention and i was listening to uh hendrix and jefferson airplane and grateful dead and all this crazy stuff when i was 10 years old and uh that really made me uh want to go there and meanwhile, I would then go to the movie theaters and see 2001 A Space Odyssey by myself uh, on a huge screen with Spanish subtitles. And, um, and so I was, I was pretty much full cultural immersion kid and, you know, uh, weirdo outsider kid, but I really, really loved the stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there, there are people that remember me from like fifth and sixth grade going, I knew you were going to be a horror writer uh, just because of the things that you would write in English class. And um, um, so all of those contiguous media media informed me. I also really loved to draw until I got back to the States and had an art teacher who beat every single speck of fun out of it for me. So then I transferred to the drama department and started Mm -hmm. getting into acting and playwriting and that sort of stuff. And, uh, and uh, first attempts at doing soundtrack music. So basically the die, ca- die was cast pretty fucking early on me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I remember my own 10th grade English teacher mm. just really just driving all the fun out of everything that we were doing. We were listening to a great audio presentation of Julius Caesar and mm. every other line she would hit pause and go footnote, uh, <laughs> come on yeah 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 it's it's like they wanted to kill your soul yeah yeah and then sh- just so happens i had to go to summer school that at, right after that for english and my grade like shot right up to an a and it right. wasn't just because i was doing it the second time around it was because like the english teacher actually let the whole presentation play through with no interruptions and yeah. We got to watch, we, for King Arthur, we got to sit down and watch Excalibur nice. from, from 1981. And I'd put that, you know, like any day in, uh, in my own rotation for, okay. uh, for any sort of programming. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, yeah, that sort of stuff. It was just like, that's what got me in, into writing too. Like my own, uh, my own passions and everything got that really going. Um, so once you started, once you realized that that was going to be the path you were, you were set out on, uh, you started out with short stories, right? Well, I mean, in, 
in ninth grade, I edited, I was the creative writing editor for the school paper. Nice. Um, so I was writing short stories and essays, but I was also uh, editing or, or curating other people's poetry and short stories and so forth. I also in ninth grade wrote the school play, um, which was an anthology short play with um, three original uh, stories uh, that were either horror or surrealism or some, uh, some meaning, meeting place between the, the two and also an ad- adaptation of Rod Serling's The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Nice. And um, uh, I also wrote some of the music for that. And I was playing in a band. And really, I thought I, I, I was setting out to be a rock star. I wanted to be like a, a John Lennon, Frank Zappa, Gene Splice baby and, and uh, uh, write spiritual songs that, uh, that got you in trouble. Um, <laughs> um, and played in a lot of bands. But uh, uh, career-wise, that never panned out for me. However, when I moved to New York City, um, I started writing short fiction in earnest. I'd written a couple of novels that went nowhere. um, But knowing that Twilight Zone magazine was right down the street. Actually, they had a big contest for Twilight Zone magazine. And uh, Stephen King, Harlan Ellison, Peter Straub... Uh, Carol Serling, Rod's widow, and a couple other people were the judges, mm. and uh, uh, and Ted Klein was the editor. So I wrote them a story just before I moved to New York. Um, actually, I had written a Christmas story for my mom, and uh, then when the, the Twilight Zone contest going, I inserted a, a a ghost underpinning into the story and sent it in. Nice. And I got a letter from Ted back saying. This story is really, really good, but the ghost seems like kind of thrown in sideways. And I'm like, oh, this dude's good. <laughs> um, and uh, but then I'm, I'm living in New York City, and uh, uh, my job, uh, my first job in New York was painting the studio, uh, the ph- photography studio of a guy named Hank Londoner who uh, took uh, nudie shots for Penthouse Magazine, mm-hmm. and. Um, and going to work and he said, yeah, I'm, I'm shooting a session today, so you can't come in. So I went uh, uh, to the neighborhood pizza place and got a slice of pizza on the radio. Uh, there was a, a news story about how 18 cab drivers had been murdered in their cab oh. so far this summer. And I was like, oh, and with my last remaining cash, I went to uh, a bodega, got a pack of cigarettes, uh, a six pack of beer, went to my studio apartment and wrote a short story called The Long Ride, which was about uh, a a ghostly cab driver in New York Mm -hmm. City uh, who had been murdered and um, was driving around every night, uh, taking nice people where they wanted to go and and giving them a great ride, uh, uh, charging regular people uh, their cab fare and if uh, somebody like the asshole who killed him wound up in his cab, he would break every bone in their body. And then at the end of the night, uh, he would drop an envelope full of money off at his widow's place and then uh, go back to being a ghost until the next night. And uh, sold that to Twilight Zone. Uh, that was my very first professional sale. And from then on, it was like, yeah, I think I'm going to be a writer. Nice. Nice. Getting that sort of feeling, that sort of 
validation from the those kind of those kinds of judges. Like that's that's fantastic. Well, um, it was really great. I mean, the, the contest was over and I lost, but right. uh, but knowing you know what I found out was Twilight Zone magazine mm-hmm. was like the office was like about 10 blocks from my apartment in New York City. So yeah. when I finished the story, I wrote the story that night uh, on a Smith uh, Corona uh, electric typewriter. Nice. And uh, uh, then I, um, the next morning, I walked down to the offices of Twilight Zone and said, I'm here to see Ted Klein. And they're like, what? And I said, yeah, I brought him a story. And somehow they let me with my hair, like uh, with my biker boots and my jeans and my army jacket and my uh, my hair down past my shoulders. They let me into the office where I went back, met Ted Klein, handed him the story and wow. talked with him for a couple of minutes. And then uh, he bought it. That's so cool. So I, I totally ballsed my way into uh into the offices just by not knowing any better and going, Hey, they're down the street. I'm going to go say hi. Right. And then, and then to not get thrown out like that. (laughs) That's fantastic. (laughs) It was amazing. Yeah. You want to talk about validation. Like, there you go right there. You know, they are, they're giving you the time of day. They're giving you a paycheck, you know, for it. So that, man, that's, that's so cool. That's so cool. So how many short stories were you working on before you decided to take the plunge and work, start working on a novel? Um, well, I had already written a couple of novels. Uh, they were uh, not horror novels per se, but they were novels about uh, how to change the world. I was a very idealistic young man. And, um, but the interesting thing was uh, my girlfriend in Pennsylvania, just before I moved to New York, uh, read the second novel that I had done and read this one particular scene where this uh, sort of new age hippie guy is sitting in his cabin in the woods uh, writing this poem about how all is perfection and everything that happens is th- what is meant to happen. And it's this sort of beautiful meditative piece. And all of a sudden this roving gang of serial killers bust into the apartment, kill him and eat him. And, um, and the head of the serial killing gang sees the poem that he had just read, reads it and start, and uh, as a tear rolls down old dead heart's face, uh, my girlfriend looks at me and says, have you ever read Stephen King? This reads a lot like him. And I mm-hmm. said, no, I, I, he's a best-selling author, right? I assumed he was, you know, I, I, I assumed he was shit. And she's <laughs> like, no, he's really good. I think you would like him. And she gave me a copy of The Stand. Oh, um, wow. And I, I read The, the Stand. Break I, was in. Like, <laughs> I was like, holy fuck, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> you sold 5 million copies of this? That's incredible. Mm-hmm. And um, so after selling a couple of uh, short stories to Twilight Zone, my old friend Craig Spector, who I uh, played in bands with in, in high school in, in, uh, in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. he, had moved to, he had moved to Boston and uh, he calls me up and he says, I got this great idea for this vampire story about this punk vampire who lives in the, the subways of New York. He had like two ideas for scenes but that basic idea. And he said, why don't you write it and we can split the money. So, you know, write the short stories, sell it to Twilight Zone, we can split the money. I'm like, "Ah, I got all this other stuff I'm doing. I'm playing in a band and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. But he came down to uh, New York to hang out for a weekend. And uh, we went to uh, uh, 
my old girlfriend from Pennsylvania who had moved up to New York and had an apartment in the Bowery. And we uh, hung out at her place for the weekend, drank a shitload of beer and talked. And in the course of it, I realized that this wasn't a short story. It was a novel mm. and sat down to write uh, what became The Light at the End, uh, yeah. a punk rock vampire New York City uh, novel. And uh, spent about uh, two years writing that thing. Uh, halfway through, Craig came down and uh, and got a job as a street messenger. I was working as a street messenger at the time, which is why street messengers are the main characters in the book. Mm -hmm. um, and he was a roller skating messenger and I was a uh, on foot messenger. But uh, yeah, I, I was doing like 10, 20 miles a day on foot, just flying all over town. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and uh, as it turned out, got rejected by about 13 different publishers mm. before finding out that Ted Klein, my guy at Twilight Zone, had just sold a book to Bantam Books called The Ceremonies for $100,000. Oh. I'm like, they like Ted, Ted likes me, maybe they'll like me. Uh, I had gotten a letter from Ted, uh, a letter of recommendation saying, I commend your attention to the work of John Skip, a young writer of unusual talent. I have purchased several of his stories and look forward to seeing more. Ted Klein. Uh, I wrote a one-page query letter uh, describing uh, the punk vampire in the subways, the people who were going to hunt him, and just saying, you know, this this is a book that takes place over eight days of terror in the uh, New York subway system and and the streets of Lower Manhattan, and. Uh, one page query letter, Ted Klein's uh, recommendation cover letter on top, put it in an envelope, handed it to Craig. Craig roller skated it into 666 Fifth Avenue, which is where Bantam Books was located. Oh, yeah. uh, it was addressed to Lou Aronica, the editor who had published Ted's thing. Mm -hmm. And um, he goes up, he roller skates up to the receptionist and says, uh, this is for this is for Lou Aronica. She says, is he expecting it? Craig says, I don't know, sign here. And just has her sign his messenger manifest. <laughs> so. Brilliant, um, brilliant. Right? Middleman, like that's so perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, we, we really played the maneuver uh, cool. So, so like half an hour later, Lou comes out for lunch and the receptionist says, oh, this is for you. And he says, uh, what is it? She says, I don't know. Um, so he takes it to lunch with him to go and meet an author. Uh, the author doesn't show up for lunch. So it's just him and this letter, which he opens up and he said he read like 10 times and um, almost got hit by a cab on the way home, uh, on the way back to the office as he was walking back, immediately got to his desk, called me up and said, I want to see the book. Wow. And um, so long story short, um, after uh, years and years and years and years of trying to uh, get stuff to happen, it all turned around in one day. Uh, we wound up with a three book deal, which wound up, uh, we wound up doing uh, six novels and, uh, and the books of the dead with Bantam before that ship uh, fell apart at the end of the skip inspector thing, 10 years had gone by and it was pretty wild time. Wow. Wow, so, so cool. Now, before we go in, you know, further into the books, because I know that you had got, uh, gotten into novelizations and then there was mm -hmm. a lot of other stuff that you got that you got to do. 
but you had also mentioned uh, playing in a band. And from what I saw, like doing my doing my own research and everything, I saw quite a bit about uh, about you, you know, performing in a band. Uh, what was that like? Was that just kind of like a way to just kind of keep the creativity going, like kind of having all these different um, different irons in the fire, as as they say? Because I know that's kind of like the way I am doing with mine. Because I am an author of my own stuff. But I'm also doing the podcasting, doing the audiobook narrating, doing the voice mm-hmm. acting. So I'm always like always needing that sort of, you know, constant creativity push. And so that I know that's what it's like for me. Is that what it's been like for you? Well, I mean, I've always loved to to do all those things. And uh, Craig and I used to call it creative crop rotation, mm-hmm. where uh, you know, you would work on this thing and uh, you would sort of like uh, you would work the field until you had finished a thing, and then you would go and work another part of the field while uh, while this part grew back. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I, music was what I thought was going to happen. It just kept not happening. But I was in band after band after band uh, in Pennsylvania, then in New York City, uh, and even after uh, Skip Inspector crashed and burned, and I was out in Hollywood, I wound up uh, playing in bands with like. Uh, Chris Poland from Megadeth and his brother Mark and yeah. uh, we never got signed but we wrote like 50 songs together we opened for Todd Rundgren at the House of Blues uh, wow. you know uh, and, and shit would happen so uh, that was all amazing after uh, Skip Inspector uh, crashed and burned um, and we were in Hollywood and um, and had uh written Nightmare on Elm Street 5, which was, I, I would say, the worst professional experience of my life. Um, um, I really, I, I was like, I need to learn how to make movies. Um, mm-hmm. I don't want to just be a, a screenwriter in Hollywood, which is yeah. like the human centipede only with less dignity. Uh, <laughs> which is like one one head, one writer's head rammed up another writer's uh, ass uh, in perpetuity until eventually something squirts out that probably doesn't resemble uh, what you set out to do. Just like with Nightmare on Elm Street 5, uh, six writers and 13 drafts later, they finally had the piece of shit uh, and we had to threaten them with legal action uh, wow. just to get our names on it. So um, yeah, it was like, I'm, I'm going to have to learn how to actually make films. So yeah. um, I started uh auditing classes at UCLA and uh, uh, on like marketing and financing and distribution, and then taking actual hands-on film classes with uh, the Hollywood Film Institute and a guy named Dove Simmons, who mm-hmm. is really an amazing crash course, crash course nuts and bolts teacher. No bullshit, yeah. no theory, just here's what you need to know to be able to do stuff. Um, um, Spike Lee studied with him. Uh, uh, Tarantino studied with him. Guy Ritchie studied with him. Uh, and by studied with, I meant, you know, took a took a weekend crash course and walked out of there learning more than most people would learn in four years of film school. Um, wow, that was really, really, really important for me. And uh, uh, worked really, really hard while playing uh, with Chris Poland, uh, trying to get movies made. Kept getting fucked over. Found out that the uh, uh, the bottom feeding, low budget end of Hollywood is just as sleazy and creepy as uh, the studio end, but they actually don't have any clout, so they're 
uh, they're sleazy and evil and they'll fuck you over, but they can't do anything for you either. So, hmm. uh, yeah, I, I, I got a massive education in, uh, the dark side of the entertainment industry. Um, but then eventually I wound up, um, getting a phone call from a guy named Andrew Cash, who, uh, along with his buddy, Daniel Ferens was making a documentary on the Elm street, uh, uh, series called never, never sleep, sleep again, again. Yep. the Elm street legacy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they tracked me down and, and said, <clears throat> would you come in and talk about nightmare five? And I said, can I tell the truth? And they said, yeah. Um, so I went in, uh, did an interview with them and had a great time. Uh, mm-hmm. and then afterwards, Andrew's like, man, I love, I read your books in high school. I love your stuff. I would like to work with you sometime. And, uh, we wound up making some films together, short films, uh, and, uh, a music video, and then wound up uh, co-directing uh, part of the uh, Epic Pictures film Tales of Halloween, which has been a Halloween favorite for like the last five years. And wow. uh, got our first Saturn Awards. Uh, it starred uh, uh, Dana Gould, uh, who created the Stan versus Evil series and was head writer for The Simpsons. And uh, yeah. and uh, James really Duvall. Really funny stand-up too. Really funny stand-up. Oh, great stand-up. Yeah, great 80s stand-up. Um, and um, <clears throat> uh, James Duvall, Jimmy Duvall, who amongst his many roles uh, was Frank the Bunny in Donnie Darko. And, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I knew the name sounded familiar. <laughs> yeah, awesome guy, but, uh, both awesome guys. Uh, Alyssa Dowling, fantastic actress, was also uh, in there with us and, um, and uh, supporting cast of thousands. Have you seen Tales of Halloween? Not yet, not yet. It sounds like I definitely need to. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, um, um, a bunch of really talented directors are in there, including uh, uh, personal fave Lucky McKee um, mm-hmm. and uh, Neil Marshall, who did The Descent. And, we, just, uh, we just rewatched The Descent, actually, uh, earlier this week. He's a fine filmmaker. Um, and uh, Mike Mendez, who made uh, um, The Convent and Big Ass Spider, among others. Uh, and... Yeah, we had a blast. We we ours is the shortest. I think ours is like just under eight minutes long, but yeah. uh, but it's really totally fucking nuts. It's it's about uh, um, people who put a lot of love into decorating their lawns for Halloween, uh-huh. and what happens when one of them is like an old school Universal uh, horror style guy who's all like black and white and gothic graveyards and all that kind of stuff. And the other guy's totally uh, Rob Zombie tits and guts and gore uh, and how, uh, how much they hate each other and how it winds up. And uh, it's called this means war, which is, which is taken from the classic line that Bugs Bunny yells. Um, Of course you realize this means war. war. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of the, the best filmmaking that I've managed to do, I did with Andrew. And now he is head editor at uh, DC's Legends of Tomorrow and has directed a couple episodes there and has a new short film in uh, Joe Bob's new drive-in extravaganza. Nice. Um, so yeah, love Andrew. Hope we get to work together again. Uh, 
Meanwhile, I'm, I'm going off more as solo director and working on some other stuff. I, um, I have two uh, films in development with uh, a production company called Spin a Dark Yarn, which is run by uh, Josh Mallerman, who did Bird Box, and uh, his partner, Ryan Lewis. And we've got a couple of films uh, uh, that I wrote uh, going uh, with them and a, a company called Atlas Industries out of Detroit. Mm -hmm. uh, that we hoped to shoot this year and then the COVID landed. And so uh, they've been bumped back and uh, maybe next year will be great. Awesome. Um, so, so that's all going on. And meanwhile, during the COVID, I went and got uh, uh, a MacBook Pro for the garage band, uh, wrote the soundtrack for one of the movies and about three hours of other music that I've just been writing kind of nonstop since the COVID landed. So that's how I'm, that's how I spent my summer vacation. Wow. It feels like, it feels like our conversation all of a sudden got like the star from super Mario brothers. And so we just go like all of a sudden we're rocketing past so much here. Uh, oh man. So, so much I'm, to unpack. Like this I'm is 63 this... fucking years old, dude. There's a yeah. lot. <laughs> Absolutely, man. You know, like, Oh man. I mean, this is, just like just blowing my mind, like all the all the different experiences that you've had. It was just really, really amazing. Now, um, speaking of, you know, like I, I, you know, I hate to, I hate to you know pick at this scab, but uh, you know that um, Andrew and Daniel already did, you know, uh, ten years ago. Um, but you you did mention you know Elm Street Five being the worst experience, the yeah. professional experience. Yeah. Now. Um, I was I was kind of fascinated a little bit, you know, by everything that was happening behind the scenes for that, especially considering how rushed it was. Yeah. Considering that it was just like, you know, Elm Street Four comes out in August, it cleans up at the box office, and all of a sudden they got, you know, and then about a month later, that's when Freddy's Nightmares debuts, and mm -hmm. all you, you can't get away from Freddy. Like this was huge. It was absolutely huge, and then all of a sudden, you know. All of a sudden, here here comes August of the very next year, and this is a year like like we we had never seen at that point. Nineteen eighty nine was just mind blowing of the amount of movies that were just coming like beating over the head, one yeah. right after the other, and it to have like all of these tentpole films and then throw in a Nightmare on Elm Street and then a Friday the Thirteenth. It was just like you couldn't get enough. Like it was just amazing. Like the sort of product, you know, of content that was just flooding at us, you know, at, at us, you know, this, you know, at this point I'm 13 years old. So I am just like, wow. I'm just like a sponge at that point, just soaking yeah. it all in. And um, so when I finally sat down and watched Elm street five, I was intrigued, <laughs> but at the same time, it was just like, I was like, okay, it, it definitely took a different turn than uh than, than part four did and i i actually was able to like understand why in story-wise um but then when i started hearing all about the different stuff behind the scenes i was like why didn't we get that you know that's uh, you know that just seemed like it was it sounded like what um now stop me if i'm wrong because obviously you experienced it um it was right around the time when they got part five into production that they recruited a lot of of um Spl um, what are they called? Splatterpunk? Is that correct? There was a Splatterpunk cattle call. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like you and Craig and uh, uh, David Scow was mm-hmm. uh, was also in there. And mm-hmm. um, how, what was that whole experience like? Uh, um, well, I mean, it was fun to win the cattle call, mm-hmm. but but then we had two weeks to to write the thing. Um, and, uh, so we blasted down a first draft script, mm-hmm. really worked out the, the mechanics of the mythology and everything, uh, yeah. of, um, you know, what made Freddie, how, uh, the dream pool worked and how it was possible that he could get into your dreams. Um, mm-hmm. you know, how he became the bastard son of a thousand maniacs, uh, and all this other metaphysical stuff that we, uh, we pulled together and uh, to, to make sense of it and take it in a really dark place that sort of locked the mythology together. We handed it in, but uh, another of the producers had a, a writer that she liked. No, who, Sarah Risher. Uh, right? I'm sorry? That was Sarah Risher, right? The one that, uh, I know who, she who was- the other producer, yes. Yeah, she, had the other know, she, yeah. She, credit, she credited herself as the one who kind of like came up with the whole dream child, you know, mm-hmm. concept in, in the first place. So, yes. Um, so she had a writer that she had uh, that, that she wanted to have do it. So he wrote a script. We wrote our script. Um, they liked our script. They hated his. So they fired us and hired him to rewrite it. And as I said, uh, to rewrite ours. And as I said, six writers and 13 drafts later, they had the piece of shit movie that uh, they evidently wanted. And um, um, yeah, it was just, it, it was just really unpleasant. Yeah. It, it was just real. It, it just made me go, wow, if this is how I'm going to be treated. Cause as a mm-hmm. novelist, yeah, you write what you want to fucking write. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, with Bantam, if, we handed in a book and they had problems with it. They would tell us what they thought. And if we agreed with them, we would fix it. And if we didn't, we wouldn't. Right. And, um, and then all of a sudden to just get kicked to the curb like that. And then like uh, attempted to get ripped off where they weren't even going to give us credit for what we came up with, with the tons of stuff that we came up with um, Mm -hmm. um, was really, really uncool. So we basically told them, um, put our names on this shit or we'll sue you, delay release of your film and cost you millions of dollars. And uh, they called us up and said, you can't do that. You didn't think of anything. We told you everything that you were doing. And we said, you realize we have all of our uh, conversations with you recorded, right? And they're like, oh, never mind. Wow. And, and they pulled the trailers and they pulled the um, um, the posters and they put our names on them. And then the movie came out and it was like, oh, fuck. This <laughs> sucks. Can you put our so names on So at the, at the end of the day, the movie didn't, did not do you any favors. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, the only real favor that it, it, it did me was that years later, Andrew Cash calls me up asking me if I'll talk about it. And we became friends and made movies together. That's what I got from Nightmare on Elm Street 5. That's a good, all right. And uh, so from, from what I from what I remember, they were also kind of scrambling to come up with a good concept for part six. Did they reach out to you guys at all after that? And, and if they did, would you have accepted? Um, number one, fuck no. Number two, fuck no. Uh, um, 
number three, they still had enough of our ideas left to rip off for number six, but we couldn't get any legal claim on it. Wow. Wow. That's yeah. uh, not, not a good experience. It really sucks. You know, and especially considering, I think it was either uh, you or Craig who mentioned that the, that the, um, the new line was saying how your script read like a Stanley Kubrick nightmare on Elm street. Yeah. Yeah. They, they did say that to us and we said, cool. Right. And they're like, no. And (laughs) (laughs) we were kicked to the curb. Now, (sighs) you know, admittedly, uh, I think from a from a conceptual standpoint and a scene standpoint, our script is really good, but mm-hmm. the dialogue's not great because we only had two weeks and we focused on story. Had we been able to go in and do rewrites like a you know like a human, mm-hmm. um, um, it would have been a much better script. But by then, our ass was out the door, and it it just got more and more muddled to the point where uh, where Mike DeLuca and the director. We're just rewriting pages on set as they were shooting, um, oh, man. which I don't think is the way to go. Yeah, yeah. It's it, unless, like you're, whenever, unless whenever you're a fucking genius. Like that, it's like whenever they have to do stuff like that, it's just it's it's a recipe for disaster. It um, really is. Now, I mean, every once in a while, you'll you'll run into something um, where that creative strategy is the creative strategy. Like, for example, uh, uh, one of the great joys. Uh, my my uh, coronavirus comfort food uh, on on television was the TV series Community, which I had never seen, uh-huh. but oh, yeah. wound up watching the entire thing, uh, minus season four, which they call the gas leak year. Um, uh, I watched the whole thing twice, and then went into all kinds of behind the scenes on how they created this amazing, hilarious show that I'm completely in love with. And yeah. they were often rewriting shit as they went along, mm-hmm. but they had an incredible writer's room uh, with Dan Harmon and a couple of other geniuses uh, at the helm. They had a great cast. They had great production designers who could uh, jump on shit uh, at a moment's notice. And, um, and so they really, they, they performed staggering uh, feats of stand-up sleight of, sleight of hand in mm-hmm. mid-production. But yeah. I wouldn't advise that for anybody because generally that is a complete recipe for clusterfuck disaster. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And speaking of television, you had also worked in television during uh, during your whole time, um, your whole oeuvre as well, correct? Um, last year, my friend Dory Miller and I uh, wrote a, a script for Creep Show, season one of Creep Show, an episode called "Times Is Tough in Musky Holler," which. Uh, uh, featured amongst others David Arquette as a corrupt cop, um, oh, nice. um, totally undoing the Dewey and Dewey. I was um, about to say like Dewey gone rogue. <laughs> yeah, uh, small town, uh, and I can't remember the the name of the awesome actor who plays the the evil mayor of the town, but uh, he was definitely inspired by uh, Andy Griffith in A Face in the Crowd. Oh uh, wow! As, as Lonesome Roads. That's another movie I would show at the Beverly. If I were screening, oh, uh, facing the crowd, yeah, 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 just one one of the greatest movies in the world, uh, but yeah, just a, a a backbiting, corrupt small town sheriff uh, uh, during a zombie apocalypse who gets his, mm-hmm. and um, I don't know if you've I, I don't know if you've seen the episode, but uh, um, 
it, it, Dory came up with the classic concept, live pie. And that's all I'm going to say. Okay. <laughs> I definitely want to want to uh, give that uh, uh, definitely that episode a look. Um, so I can see what, um, what, that, what that's all about. Um, now, during all of this, during all of the different projects, everything you've been working on, you've also been doing, uh, you've also been really kind of adapting with all the different changes in the publishing world. Because uh, you've gotten, um, you've gotten the New York Times bestselling author status, mm-hmm. and you've also worked with a lot of indie uh, publishers as well. Yeah, what has your experience has been like? Uh, how would you compare the two? Well, there's a lot more money uh, in the mainstream than there is in the indie, mm-hmm. um, but there was a lot more money in the '80s for. Uh, for any horror novelist who isn't Stephen King than there is now, by and large. I like that there's a resurgence going on. I love that uh, uh, that my friend Josh Merriman is doing so well. Um, But uh, yeah, basically small press gives you a lot of independence, which I value very highly, Um, but it's very hard to make a living there. In, unless you in, unless you're a machine unless you you know uh, publish several books a year uh, some people manage to, to do that stuff um, I um, make my living uh, piece by piece I've been a freelancer for uh, almost entirely for, for most of my life which means that sometimes I do pretty well and sometimes like I'm an inch from homeless and uh, you know it's it, you know it goes up and down as uh, as fate would have it but um, yeah, I've been very, very lucky, uh, in that I've, I've managed to get away with this for 63 years and, um, and, and still be having fun. I mostly do stuff that makes me happy. Yeah. I've turned down, I've turned down absurd amounts of money that I knew were going to make me miserable because money in the end doesn't make you happy, particularly if what you've done is pollute the one thing that gives your life joy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, th- these are all gambles. Some some things, some things work out really well. Some things uh, uh, work. Some things work out professionally really well. Some things work out artistically really well, um, without the financial, uh, uh, you know, real benefit. But, um, um, you know, obviously, the best is when is when it works when it fires on all cylinders. But yeah. uh, but a lot of my favorite work has, uh, you know, hasn't been read by a ton of people or hasn't been watched or listened to by a bunch of people. But it's the stuff that I love the most. Nice. Uh, that that said, you know, you get uh, you 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 get something into the mainstream and it hits mm-hmm. and and you're proud of it. Yeah, that is a lovely thing. You know, you 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 can live on that for a while. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. And um, so that kind of sounds a lot like what, uh, what you would recommend to a lot of up and coming writers these days is about doing what makes you happy. Um, would you, would you say, would you say that would be like a really good uh, piece of advice to people or is there anything else you would like to kind of, you know, give off as words of wisdom to those that are coming up? Well, I, I think, um, that doing what you love, there is no substitute for doing what you love. Mm-hmm. Um, um, 
the great screenwriter William Goldman said, uh, if you want to work as a screenwriter, you can make a lot of money, but you better have something else that you actually derive artistic creative pleasure from because you mm. probably won't find it there. Mm. Um, and uh, so he wrote novels for joy and yeah. he wrote novels like The Princess Bride and Marathon Man and Magic yep. uh, that wound up uh, doing very well as novels and then fortunately uh, wound up doing very well as movies. Yeah. Um, a lot of his books now, so he, he died. A, a, he, died he died in 2018. Yeah. Um, and uh, a lot yeah. of his, his best books that were never translated into film are not in print right now. Hmm. How fucking crazy is that? That really um, is. It yeah. really, really is. I, I, I look forward to the moment when, uh, when you can go online and find William Goldman's Control, which is my hmm. favorite of his books, which you couldn't adapt into a film because if you could see what was happening, it would give away the trick. Yeah. Um, but man, the tricks he pulls in that book are so cool. He's one of my heroes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I really, really, I've, I must've read both adventures in the screen trade and which lie did I tell? Like mo definitely multiple times. Uh, oh yeah. He, he was, he's somebody that I always point at as a key inspiration for me. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. You know, just the, just the fact the fact that he, I, I'll never forget like one of the last lines in Adventures in the Screen Trade. It's so perfect. Is we're the ones that first get to make the movie. Yeah, like, that's it right there. Yeah, that is it right there. That you know, and I I just he, you know like the fact that he left when he did. It just made me regret the fact that I started getting into podcasting as late as I did because mm -hmm. I would have loved to have been able to sit down with him. I would have loved to just at least you know, have a moment or something like that, you know, with him. So it's, uh, uh, yeah, I, I would have loved to have meet him, met him as well. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. he was quite a character. He really um, was really yeah. was. And so, um, so where can, uh, where can my listeners find you on, on uh, social media? Um, I'm mostly on Facebook. Mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've got a Twitter account, your pal skip hash, uh, or, you know, at your pal skip, but I, I don't go there very often. I check into Facebook about once a day and try to uh, um, leave a message of hope in our, uh, in our crazed times. Um, and I also regularly post music there from my SoundCloud where I, uh, um, where I post a lot of my stuff, including uh, I did a soundtrack for Josh Mallerman's uh, uh, live streaming novel, Carpenter's Farm. I did like a 45 minute soundtrack for, for his novel and wow. that's all up there. Um, yeah. So th that's basically that. That's how you find me. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I hope that all of you have been able to really kind of take this conversation, run with it the way that we have and uh, just indulge in what makes you happy. That is the key thing that I hope that all of you really take with uh, from this. Um I, I really can't express it any better than that. Do, you know, like if you are sitting out in this wonderful world of writing, of creating, of any sort of sense, by all means, make sure it is something that you enjoy. Make something, make sure it is something that you have the passion for. Make sure that it's something you want to follow through to the end and have it not get, get you the way that, uh, that, so, that so, many other, so many other things do in this world. 
Yeah, I mean, if it ain't fun, why the fuck are you doing it? Uh, there's a lot more money in plumbing. Exactly. Exactly. Couldn't, couldn't put a, a better stamp on this. So I will definitely leave it with, with that. Do what you do, what you love, do what makes you happy. And if you're just doing it for the money, there are plenty of other venues to do it. You have, you're doing this because it makes you happy because it brings you joy to get those words out, to get the dialogue out, to get the music out, to get everything out there to the world. You are basically saying to the world that you have something to say and you, it brought you joy to say it. So follow through with it. So for John Skip, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, Ever Upward, and I will see you next week. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. If you've never been an Audible customer and want to see what they offer, just go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title for free, and start listening. It's that easy. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. And with this free 30-day trial, you'll have your pick of it all. You can hear books of all genres narrated by Jim Dale, Stephen Fry, Will Patton, Alex Hyde-White, Jeff Brick, Neil Shaw, William Demerit, and even a few by me, George Soroy. So go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and start your own 30-day journey with Audible today.